Welcome to the Dead Pixel Podcast. This is the podcast home for all the people that work in the archival and production world. The artists and technicians that keep production going long after the shoot is finished. We're engineers, colorists, restorers, administrators, cinematographers, editors, animators, designers, and filmmakers. We work in both sound and visual, in analog and digital. The one thing that we share in common is that we spend some, if not all, of our time working in dark rooms, working alone. Finally, we get to share our stories here on the Dead Pixel Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Dead Pixel Podcast. Uh, this is Lee Klein and I'm with... Ryan Hollings. Yes. And we are, uh, we're on like maybe, what is this, like our eighth or ninth, tenth podcast that we've done? Something like Something that. Something like that, yeah. Yeah. I think we've got our feel for it now. You're feeling cocky. Yeah, uh, a little cocky. Like that's how good it's, this one's going to be. It's going to yeah, it's going to yeah, blow totally. all the you're, all the other ones away. You're setting high expectations for exactly. this one. Exactly. Well, we've got two really good we guests. We should have this high time. expectations cuz yeah, this is the first time we've had two guests. Exactly. See, see so our Zoom that you can't see has four four pictures which we haven't really had before too. Um yeah, we've been talking about uh who we want to talk to and what we want to hear people talk about and you know there's some things that are uh, mysterious to people and there's other things that are pretty pretty you know everyone understands what sound is and everyone stands what pictures but uh there's something about the library of congress to me that i um you know i think i went to some museums in dc that had library of congress things in it but it really it just meant this big place with lots of stuff in it to me that was collected i don't know it's got to be more than that but our guests today will probably be able to shed some light on that we've got two really great guests uh, our first guest is Heather Linville, who is the Motion Picture Laboratory Supervisor at the Library of Congress at the National Audio and Visual Conservation Center in Culpeper, Virginia. And Heather manages the film library and the staff there. And our other guest is George Willeman. I say that right? Is that how you say your name, Willeman? Yes, you okay. get a bonus, yes. <laughs> uh, George is the nitrate film leader, ni film vault leader, excuse me. Also he's not the, the leader. No, he's, yeah. Uh, I was going to let George make that oh, joke. Oh, that joke? I'm yeah. sorry. <laughs> okay, so here, let me start again. George Willeman is the nitrate film vault leader. Yes, film leader. Isn't that clever? <laughs> yes. <laughs> he's also at the National Audiovisual Conservation Center in Culpeper, and... George oversees the day-to-day -day operations of the nitrate film vault there, which is uh, probably a good place to start. Um, well, okay, I want to ask you the very basic question of what the hell is nitrate? Because we've probably mentioned it a bunch of times on this podcast, but I also, uh, uh, I'll let you get into that, but how about we start with Heather and say, what is the Library of Congress? The Library of Congress is the library for the people, uh, but it is also the library for Congress. And as part of this massive institution, there are varying levels of activities going on within the library. Uh, there's access to all different kinds of materials, books, uh, photographs, uh, things like that, uh, but also moving image materials. And also within access, there's preservation and conservation. Uh, the library holds one of the largest collections of, in our area of focus, uh, audiovisual materials. And it's actually kind of hard to un realize that it's 1.8 million items of film material, for example. Just film material. Just film. Wow. 1.8 million. 
and uh, for audio recordings of all different flavors, that's 3.5 million. Audio wins. <laughs> Finally. <laughs> Finally, audio comes in first. So that's that's a, a lot a of stuff. Election. Yes. Yeah. What's the oldest thing at the Library of Congress? Is there such a question answer to that? Such a question answer? Is there such a <laughs> answer to that question? There probably is. Like what do things film. date? What 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 generally do things date back until? I mean, film is going to be its own thing, right? Because film started after books and what have you. But you think it's sixteen hundreds, fifteen hundreds, or not that early? Probably that far back. I mean, there's a lot of things uh, in the collection and on exhibit, especially uh, in D.C. on the Mall, like the Gutenberg uh, Bible, for example. So it does go pretty far back in time. Yeah, I always saw it, you know, from a layperson's perspective. To me, it's like an imprintor of imprintor, imprintor it, something that signified value of a work of a piece of art or something like that. You know, like I particularly remember when music that my dad played for me as a kid when would be like inducted into the Library of Congress and it seeming like it, you know, signified that it had important social value beyond just me playing the records on his old turntable. Right. And I mean, one of the other major parts of the library is copyright and acquiring any and all copyrighted materials. That is one of the major ways that the library has built this deep and massive collection. And, you know, the goal is always access to provide access to all this, this material. And if George, I can add one yeah. little one little thing to that, which which always hits me, the the copyright collection, especially for motion pictures, by accident, because of this legal precedent of of makers having to submit their material, we have ended up saving some films from being lost simply because a copy got sent to the Library of Congress and put it in our in our collection. More true with little independent films of like the past fifty years on safety film somewhat for nitrate a lot of the the nitrate things that were sent in for copyright we no longer have because they're nitrate and some got sent back and we won't get into that but uh, it's just amazing that the things that have been saved from being lost simply because they were sent here put on shelf never you know never intended to be seen again unless hmm. somebody had a copyright dispute and this would be their proof that they had made this film oh wow but it's become a whole different thing now because of the interest in a lot of these little films and the voracious 24-hour uh, streaming services now. <laughs> yeah, I bet you get asked for things all the time now because everybody wants content. Yep. And where else are you going to look? That's the probably a good starting place anyway. Mm -hmm. So, George, you've been – I know Heather came from the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences because Heather and I have worked together on projects there. But I only know you from the Library of Congress. That's, Did you have you been there the entire time? My entire life, I, I've been. They found me on the steps. <laughs> Someone sent you for copyright. Yeah, this baby <laughs> exists. This is it. To this day, it amazes me. Um, I've been into film and fascinated with film as far back as the third grade. That's the earliest I can remember. And when I decided to go to college after, after high school, I decided. I'm going to get a degree in motion picture, motion picture production. Of course, my parents are like, oh, great. What are you going to do with that? So I went to Wright State University in Dayton, Ohio, 
and uh, was working on a degree in production. And one day my uh, advisor, who was one of my professors, called me and said, hey, how would you like to inspect film for the Library of Congress? And I'm like, yeah, that'd be great. What, I'm going to go to D.C.? He says, no, it's right over here next door at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. I'm like, okay. So I went over there to check it out, and sure enough, there was a building there that had these purpose-built nitrate vaults in it that had been built by the Air Force for a newsreel that they produced right after World War II. And they kept them open until the early 60s, and then that all moved out to California. And about the same time, the library started looking into collecting – Not they weren't going to collect films, but they started looking to borrow material to make copies for the library. The idea being they would copy them, and they would either send them back to the owner or get rid of the nitrate. So that was a five-year project. We're still on it some 60-some <laughs> years later because, you know, things kept changing. The, the, the target kept changing on this thing. So I got the job, and I was a, a vault collection attendant, which meant I stood in the vaults for four to eight hours a day, pulling cans off the shelf and taking the lid off and seeing if they were deteriorating. And that's what it was all the way through college. And, of course, my plan was when I graduate, go to Hollywood. By the time I was able to graduate, because it was, you know, six years of a four-year program, which is what film programs always are, I began to feel that there was more than just an accidental reason for me being there because my interest was in all of these films that I was going over, you know, and I was the only person there who really had a strong interest in early film. So I stuck it out for a long time until I got a permanent position and eventually became the... Uh, the, sort of the vault leader out there. And then when we moved from Dayton to Culpeper in 2007, you know, they boxed me up and sent me along with the rest <laughs> of the film. And here I am. And that's been 37 years. That's crazy. Do you have, uh, do you have vinegar syndrome? And uh, you don't have to answer. You don't have to answer that. How about we have Heather answer what vinegar syndrome is though, because it's uh well, I think it's the name of a band or many, maybe, maybe many it's a record label. I think it's a record label. I believe it's probably been a movie. It's not good. Oh, it's not a record label. It's a film. It's a uh, DVD label, yes. Yeah, DVD yes. label. It's not great, but before I get to that, I want to mention that I first met George in Dayton, Ohio, at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in the summer of 2003. Uh, I was hired as a summer intern as a group. There were a group of us, four, I think that were hired to help uh, prepare the nitrate collection for the move to Culpeper. So putting, it was standing in vaults and putting barcodes on cans <laughs> for days and in uh, probably months. But I met George, that's the first time I met George and realized his passion for nitrate and it's a very infectious passion and uh i i got it too and uh <laughs> i i thank george for his early uh mentorship of my uh career and entrance into the field because that was so early on in in my uh career and it you know was a, a very positive impact on me and you know, I became very interested in preserving nitrate and restoring nitrate films. And so I thank George uh, for a lot of that. Oh, you are quite welcome. I, gosh, gosh, I'm embarrassed now. Uh, no, I still do that. If um, if some, if I feel that someone has the, that passion and that fire, because you have to. Uh, 
if you're going to work with nitrate film, you have to be passionate about it because it could be the nastiest, most disgusting, uh, potentially dangerous material you'd ever have to hang around, you know, and I've, I've gotten into some really bad film that has given me a headache and just made my clothes filthy and smelly and gotten everyone around me just complaining to high heaven and evacuating the room because mm. it's so bad. So, and I still want to do it. So you got to have so, either you're just insane or you have a real passion for it. Yeah. And I think some of the things that we have been able to do with this film kind of prove that, you know, our passion is paying off. Do you think that that nitrate film from the nitrate era preserved well would last longer than safety film preserved well or is that is that not really a fair question and, well here's the interesting thing about it we have negatives from before world war one like biograph negatives you know D.O. griffith biographs and even earlier edison films that are well over 100 years old and they are not deteriorating they're just getting old they're getting brittle they're getting very delicate, but they are not chemically breaking down. Why is that, do you think? Um, I kind of see it as at that time, film business was still kind of a almost like an artisanal cottage industry, you know, film being made in loving little batches and that kind of thing. World War One changed all of that because that's when it was realized what a great political and business tool film could be, and they had to ramp up production and production of film production of film stock and that's when we start having problems because sure enough you get into world war one and a lot of our stuff from that era is in terrible shape hmm. you know 17 18 19 forget about it hmm. and the same with world war ii we have the same problem with stuff from the world war ii era because all the good nitrate was going into ammunition right huh. it's interesting because for me you know i only uh, you know i'm not a preservationist, but, uh, uh, you know, I, I need to access your materials to do my job properly. And I'm dependent upon people like you and, and, and institutions like you to actually do that right. When I see a piece of well-preserved nitrate, original, not a copy, but an original piece of nitrate film, I'm just amazed that something that can be 100 years old could carry such lusciousness, such such beautiful imagery that, you know, you look at like what happened, you know, in the 80s and 90s with, with crappy VHS tape and stuff like that. Like, you know, that was supposed to be ahead of the technology. And this this is hundreds, a year, hundred year old technology that just looks and sounds fantastic. Well, we recently uh, in the film lab inspected a nitrate fine grain of the best years of our lives, which was a recent restoration partnership between the library and the Academy Film Archive. And one of the staff within the lab uh, prepped the film to be scanned uh, in, on, on one of our 4K film scanners. And she said that it was the most beautiful element of nitrate that she had ever seen in her life. And it was just exquisitely printed and processed and exposed perfectly. And the, the scans that came out of that fine grain are just gorgeous. Yeah. Uh, and so those, those situations in the film lab, I wish were more frequent. <laughs> those are, those are pinch me moments, really. Yes. Yes. Those are like, 
I get a call. You got to come over here and look at this. <laughs> yeah. Gorgeous. Yeah. I had a similar thing like that with uh, when we worked on Mildred Pierce because I had looked at copies, fine grains, which is the first copy made from that nitrate. And, you know, it was pretty good. It was fine. It had, you know, some copy issues and things like that. But then when I found out there was a nitrate negative, they scanned a test of it. I remember sitting in a, a, a big digital intermediate theater on the Warner Brothers lot and then putting it up. I don't even think it had a correction on it. I think it was just a flat scan. And we all just are, no one said anything for at least a couple of minutes when we were just like, holy shit, that is <laughs> stunning. Because mm -hmm. it was really, it was a, and that was the same, a pinch me moment where I thought, yeah. how can this get better? You know, that was, that was 19, 1940s, you know, it was, it's a really long time ago. Somebody took the care. I think it might have been MoMA. I don't remember who, who, who housed that film element, but somebody took the care of it and it lasted and it gave us a, you know, an amazing looking movie today, which is. Well, Mild deal. Mildred Pierce's Warner Brothers, right? It is. I think that's ours. I think we have that negative. Did that come from, that might have come from you, huh? I am pretty sure. Yeah. I'm sure it did. Yeah. Well, anyway, it was gorgeous, whoever had it. It was us. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's yours. Well, I'd take say, all the credit. <laughs> right. One of the experiences we had a, a couple years ago, we prepared some uh, William S. Hart features for the Portnoni Festival. And one of them is this film called uh, Blue Blazes Rowden which has been shown around several places now. And on that one, we had three reels of the original five reel negative from the teens. Reels one and two were gone. But we got a 16 millimeter print that I believe came from UCLA. And when we, and it was, they scanned, the lab scanned it for us, all this stuff. And the print itself, the 16 millimeter print was amazing. It was like the most beautiful 16 millimeter I had ever seen in my life. I couldn't believe it. So the first two reels are completely that 16. You get into reel three and it's amazing to watch because, you know, reel two ends and then reel three starts. And all of a sudden you're like, whoa, because it's this original negative from 1917, I think. And it's just shocking how crisp and clear it is. However, again, we're talking World War One era. All the titles, pretty much all the titles in those negatives had gone bad because the titles were printed on a different film stock and it was a very cheap film stock and they started going. So we're putting this thing together like, oh, these titles are looking terrible. So we basically took all the titles from the 16 millimeter and dropped them in where they belonged in the 35. And because the 16 was such a great print, you don't really notice the difference in quality. But yeah, we, we get comments i think it just was shown a couple months ago at capital fest up in uh, rome new york and we've gotten several comments from them about just how amazing it looked so if you get a chance i highly recommend <laughs> seeing blue blazes routing yes yeah so put that, that was, in the calendar yeah that was an amazing moment for the film lab our colorist that was another phone call you have to come see this um, <laughs> it was just incredibly sharp and it was almost like you were in the room <laughs> Yeah. You know, at the moment it was it was recorded. So yeah, we we love those moments. Yes, uh, and they happen pretty often. And they're it's just a magical experience when you come across an element like that. I think we we should coin that term though. Like you got to come see this moment because that's yeah. really <laughs> we all have those. I mean, Ryan yeah. Ryan has you got to come hear this, but right. we have sure. you got to come see this. The uh, oh, go ahead. No, no, please go ahead. I was going to say. No. Oh, it was there a second ago. Um, Sorry. <laughs> wait a minute. Wait, wait. 
No, it'll come back. Go ahead. Ryan, your turn. <laughs> uh, I was just going, I just wanted to ask, you know, I often get asked what my, what the best sounding, what my favorite sounding thing I've worked on, you know, what are the things that I've worked on that really hit me both in terms of like, you know, technical quality, but also something that I love that I was, you know, you know, honored to work on and that kind of stuff. Do you guys have any of those sort of, you know, like signposts along your career? Like, man, I got to do this. I got to work on this. How much do you time start? do you have? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, know, I see I Heather, know. That's, Heather's that's going exactly for it. My I can problem tell too. Go ahead. Well, Which one? Yeah. I, it, one of my very early photochemical preservation projects was working on Zorba the Greek. And I, I became obsessed with that soundtrack. I just love the, it's the, the, the theme of that film is just so addictive and it has this pace to it that I've, I really enjoyed and had not really listened to that type of music in my life before that, but just, you know, for movie preservation, you watch movies over and over and over again. And you're like, Ugh, I have to listen to this theme again, you know, uh, right. for a movie, but that I never, never got sick of. I loved the opening sequence of that film. And what kind of music is it? I honestly don't know it. Okay, George, you're, you're, you've had some time now. So what's, yeah, the, what's coming? Pick one. Mind? Okay, yeah. I'll pick a good one. Hopefully a good one. Um, I like to say you always, I think anybody that works in any archive ends up with a sort of a, a bucket list films that they themselves would always like to see preserved. Maybe they will, maybe they won't. One of mine was I discovered, you know, back in the in the early days when I was just, uh, you know, the, the attendant, um, one of the collections we have is the Thomas Edison collection. And these are films that were found at the Edison Historic National Park uh, up in West Orange, New Jersey. And when the National Park Service took it over, when it was given to them by McGraw-Hill Edison, they found this vault full of nitrate film there. And they're like, well, we can't store this. So they called the library and the library took it in. And basically, I like to say that this collection has three different parts. It has films from the studio, some films from the studio, films of experiments, and films of self-aggrandizing newsreel stories about how great Thomas Edison is. <laughs> well, in those, I found these little films, and they're silent, but they all had very musical-sounding titles to them. And I'm like, this is kind of odd. What the heck is this? Like musical blacksmith and you know things like that. I started doing some research on these, and it turns out that the Edison company developed a sound film system that they introduced to the public in 1913 called the Kinetophone. So I found that we had, you know, about 10 of these different films. But, of course, we didn't have the sound to them. The sound was recorded on a very large cylinder. I mean, regular cylinders, you know, they're about this big. Kinetophone cylinders are humongous. Well, we go many years down the pike, and I started working on some stuff here where I was getting to synchronize. You know, we had, like, a film and a disc soundtrack, and I got to resynchronize those. And I'm like wow, I wonder if the Edison people have these cylinders and we could put these things back together. So we got a hold of the people at Edison. Sure enough, they had some cylinders. And we sent them our list and they sent us their list and turned out there were eight of them that could be recombined. So they made digital recordings of the cylinders, sent them to us. The lab did scanning of the films. They gave them all to me. And then it was for me to figure out how do these go together because they don't run at 24 frames per second. Yeah, they're probably vari variable, right? No, 
They no. were not. They were 16 frames a second. Like, and solidly 16. Well, as solid <laughs> okay. as they could get. Um, because it's all, ex- it's, it's incredibly analog. And you have, you know, you have the camera tied to a cylinder recorder that's up above the people acting with a humongous horn. And at the beginning of every film, just before it starts, you hear a very loud clap. And some people said it's two boards being slapped together. Some people say it's two empty abs of coconuts being knocked together as a sink. It is a sink pulse. The idea being that when the people are setting up at the theater, you are turning the cylinder by hand with the stylus on it. And when you hear that click, you stop there. The film starts. You see the title. There's one second of blank. You throw the clutch. If you do it right, it's in sync. Wow. (laughs) The system didn't last very long because (laughs) two reasons. One, sync was almost impossible. And two, the the very strongly organized union projectionists were not going to sit for it because it was way too much to deal with. Because in New York at that time, you were not allowed to have motorized projectors. Had to be hand-cranked because they were afraid if you had a motorized projector, the projectionists would head down the alley for a smoke. And the film would catch on fire and kill everybody. Uh, right. Which so, could happen. Which could happen. So the projectionist has to crank. At the same time, he's got to listen on these really primitive headphones to the soundtrack. And when it goes out of sync, he's got to turn a knob either left or right to bring it back. It makes the film jump four frames forwards or backwards. The trick is he has to reach through the projector and risk burning himself on the carbon arc lamp house that's right behind him. So, you know. Within two weeks, they were having problems with the system. Within a year, it was done. Yeah, it was over. But, but the fact that you were able to get some uh, some archival ones and, and get them to yes. be utilized and, is amazing. And the first day I got one sunk properly, I was so excited, and there was nobody else around. <laughs> <laughs> of course. I don't know. Ah, ah, yeah. Ah, you you know. needed to yeah, call it's... Heather on the phone and say, you got to come, you got to come, come, come hear this. this. Yeah. You got to come hear so, this. Yeah. So, uh, so anyways, those, those are actually out. We put those out on DVD mm. um, and you can see, and it's just amazing. It's amazing to see these. Uh, if you watch all eight of them at once, you begin to realize the, the serious problems with the system. In fact, that other than having synchronized dialogue, they were a step back 15 years. And for a film made in 1913, that's really yeah yeah (laughs) so for me for me putting those together so that people could actually see these things and they weren't just this mysterious thing that you read about in old histories that was a big one for me what do you know about uh paper prints because i had seen something i want to say it was in bologna it might have been at uh at the academy at one of the um the talks there but there was i think people to save money made film prints on paper and actually Put them, sent them to the Library of Congress, and you guys have a bunch of paper prints. Am I? Does this sound familiar? You're close. <laughs> I'm close. Okay. What am I thinking it, of then? It's an interesting. Do you want to talk, tell them about the? It's a copyright thing. It's a copyright thing. Right. Copyright thing. That's right. Yes. So at the time, the library didn't have procedures in place to accept, you know, film elements as a representation of copyright, and so. The film, filmmakers at that time had to copyright their material. They didn't want it stolen. And so they were like, well, you know, they accept books on paper. Like, why don't we just provide them the film on paper? Uh, so that's how the collection started. Right. Uh, and and you copyright photographs, too. Right. 
And so there's 3,000 of these yep. in the collection, roughly. That, yeah. You and can actually play them, right? Or no? No, they're, they're only exposed. There's only image on one side. The other side, there's nothing. Right. You, you could every probably, frame of could you scan it? Like, yes. Like, yeah. Yeah, There's like every scanning frame of the a piece of paper or a photograph yeah. or something. Yeah, it's like a big, long, skinny photograph. Yeah. Wow. And we do have, it's called the Stokes scanner. It's a piece of equipment we have in the film lab that can, with a little assistance from staff, advance the film, the paper film, uh, across horizontal kind of platform and the camera faces down towards the paper print and captures four frames at a time. And so from that, it creates a 16-bit TIFF files. Once those files are created, there's some editorial work that happens to then uh, bring those files together in, a, in the correct order. How does it look if you then figure out a way to watch it? Can you, can you actually see clearly what's happening? Yes, you can actually, we've turned these paper prints that we've scanned on the Stokes scanner uh, into digital viewable files. And so many are, some are some of them are appearing on the National Screening Room, uh, but we also have a collection of previously preserved paper prints in 16 millimeter for earlier preservation advancements that took place before present day. And those are also on the National Screening Room. And we're trying to go back to digitize those paper prints uh, at a higher uh, resolution. So it's slow going. It can take sometimes a few days to quote unquote scan a paper print reel. Um, some of the reels are like 2000 feet. So they're wow large yeah. others are, are are very small and don't take very long and it like i said it it does the stokes printer can advance the film paper film but there's human intervention at all times making sure that when the paper print is advanced it lands in the right spot in order for a proper capture to be made mm -hmm. um, so it's an advancement and we're hopeful we can continue to digitize the collection and perhaps find a way to do it faster <laughs> just because there's 3000 of them and you know we want to make them accessible and and are these the only place that these films exist too on these these paper yes, prints yeah that's the other thing a lot of these paper prints the 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 films that exist on these reels only survive in the form of the paper print Wow. So that and that makes them even more important and valuable and uh, worthy of preservation. I mean, it makes me think about what other craziness you have as things people submitted for because, you know, they were copywriting their material. So what other things have you seen? Are there other really strange mediums like paper? I mean, besides, you know, 35, not in nitrate, but we have things. We have like 28 millimeter prints. We have, of course, 16, um, 8 and Super 8 and 9.5. And and while many archives kind of, you know, yeah, we don't want that stuff. That's amateur. Um, 
there have been some lost, important lost films found on 16 millimeter and 9.5 and and 28. Uh, we have some 28s that we're working on now for a Vitagraph comedy set. And 28 millimeter prints, if they're in good condition, they look incredible because mm. they're directly off of 35s. Mm. They're just a slightly smaller uh, film, and it was an early home format and also used for for a traveling showman, and it was an early safety base too, uh, which is the problem with it because that early safety base tends to fall apart rather quickly. These are all uh, black and white too, I assume. Yeah, they're tinted usually, actually. Tinted, yeah. yeah. That's the other thing now because we can do a lot with scanning. In the early days when things got copied, if, even if they were tinted, most time they just got copied in black and white and someone write down that the, you know it was a tinted reel. Now we can capture the tints of these original nitrate and silent and silent films so people can see exactly what they looked like, hmm. you know, because you know, a lot of times people don't think, eh, tending film, big deal. But the, a lot of times the director intended it to look like this. And you see, you know, how many films have you seen where it's supposed to be nighttime and it obviously isn't? Well, you put the right color, tint or tone on there and it it's changed. nighttime. Yep. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's a very good point. I, you know, blue especially you put a blue filter on there you got night yep. yeah so like zooming out a little bit and feel free not to answer this if it's like politically tricky but um what uh what what drives the projects that you guys work on you know like in terms of you've got whatever six million pieces of material like how do you choose mm. and well, where's the, it's... is the funding all from the government well, we, as the film lab supervisor, we have our own in-house facility that we can digitize motion picture film and also photochemically preserve 35 millimeter black and white materials in-house. And so a lot of the workflows that are, that are the films that are coming through those two workflows come from a, a lot of different avenues. One is the public service office, PSO. That's if a researcher or filmmaker goes to the Hill, to the reading room, is like, I'm making a documentary on fire trucks, you know, what footage you have, or I'm looking actually for this specific silent film. I know that it's public domain. I want to release it, uh, stream it, Hmm. whatever. If it's not already, if we don't already have a digital copy, the best surviving material within our holdings comes up to the lab and is both preserved. And we also create that access file for the client because the goal of the, the film lab is to ideally have these very important films come up to the lab once to be both preserved either in 2K or 4K, uh, depending on the element type. And then from those master files, creating that access copy. Another avenue is partnerships with grant funding organizations like the Film Foundation. Mm. I was saying earlier about Best Years of Our Lives, that was a film foundation uh, funded project that the Academy oversaw. And we have a couple film foundation projects that we work on each year. And so that, you know, was a grant funded project. We also internally have curatorial department that is looking at our collections, our holdings and determining, you know, what would be great to add to the library's national screening room. Festivals will reach out to us. We're doing a retrospective on a 
certain director, we'd like to borrow this print because we also create prints and loan prints, but also could you make a DCP of whatever? Uh, we do that as well. And so the, the determination of what we work on is like internal, curatorial, public, telling us what's important uh, right. and preserving, and uh, also grant-funded type projects. And recalling, saying, hey, I need a print of this. Do you uh, yeah. guys have it? I never asked for a print, though. I say I want the name. Oh, yeah, not a print. I, 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 yeah, I, print. I, I go right to, the, right to the beginning, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, most of the time we're probably going to ask that question. We're probably going to get a print because not everything exists as originals. And sometimes they don't even – you don't have a print of something. I mean, it's just, you know, we were talking to uh, Shivendra, and, uh, the, uh, our friend in, in India, and he's just saying because of the lack of government funding toward preservation, so many films from the 20s and 30s and 40s in India are just plain gone. They're just not there anymore. We're lucky to have an institution like the Library of Congress who actually set up this up. Maybe it was set up for copyright protection, but it actually ended up doing so many other services. Same with all the other archives. I mean, I don't think anybody ever thought of the BFI was going to have like the best version of double indemnity, but they do. So, you know, you, you end up having strange things in archives that end up being very, very valuable. And, you know, we say it on this podcast all the time. You're only as good as your film, so you're only as good as your archive, and you're only as good as people yeah, putting all this stuff. And, and it's amazing the things that can be there hiding in plain sight, as they say. I think Babyface is a great example. It was years ago, and it was totally by accident. Uh, I can't remember if somebody wanted a copy of Babyface or, or it was going to be for a film festival or something like that. And my boss, Mike Michon, was the curator then, and he called me out in Dayton and said, could you take a look at what we have on Babyface? And I go back, and I look at it, and I'm like, we've got – Two negatives on Babyface. That's really odd because it's a Warner Brothers film. We usually never have two negatives. So he said, well, check them out. See what it is. So I get the two real ones out, and immediately I notice that one of them is about 150 feet longer than the other. Wow. So we start doing some research, and it turns out, yes, Babyface was quite the lascivious production in its day. And when, they, when Warner Brothers wanted to reissue it, they had to cut a lot out of it. And so for whatever reason, they had to do this with a lot of films then to reissue them. In fact, one of them, uh, Convention City, never got reissued because the the, uh, the Breen, his Breen office told Jack Warner, don't bother. And so supposedly in a fit of peak, he had the negative destroyed. And that's one that's you know on the hot list to be found. Mm. But on Babyface, it turned out, for whatever reason, they saved the unexpurgated version of it. <laughs> And so we were able to preserve it, and it's out on DVD now. And it, it's like, wow! It's amazing how much they changed in it. They changed the whole, the whole direction of the film at one point. It's quite astounding. And again, it had been there since the early '60s when we got that material in. No one had ever really thought to really look that closely at it. That's great. You because know, I, I was. It made me think about a lot of the times that. Uh, the, they shot two cameras because one was going to be the international one and the other one was going to be the domestic or something like that. That's what I thought you were going with it. But um, I, do, do you often find that things are archived incorrectly? In other words, that it may say it's a dupe, but it's actually an original or uh, vice versa? Or I mean, because, Not as often as we'd like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because you got – I mean people are just throwing things in that vault – Constantly. I mean, how do you even keep up with the amount of stuff that comes in and goes out? Goes I'm in? amazed myself that we are able to keep up. Yeah. Is there right rooms now, of right stuff now, that 
there rooms of things that are just not archived or, or cataloged yet? Uh, not for nitrate. I mean, we're kind of in an interesting position in that, you know, we can't just, you know, leave it sitting somewhere. <laughs> uh, we pretty much stuff comes in and we have to deal with it. We do have several collections that we are currently processing that came in, you know, before the, the pandemic. And we're hoping to get back to them once we're up and running full full blast. But yeah, most most nitrate wise, we've got everything pretty much cataloged in on the shelf. Now, safety film, video, that's a totally different thing. And yes, there's been such an influx of material that uh, there are skids, literally skids of material that are waiting for us to get to. And that's because vaults have closed or labs have closed and they just needed yep. a place to put it. And you guys exactly. said, we'll take it because we're the Library of Congress. Yeah. <laughs> Indeed. That's what we do. That's what we do. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a good service. Are most things that you work on later viewable in one of the Smithsonian museums at some point? Like if I was the average museum goer, would I be able to see a lot of these things? Well, um, I keep, I keep bringing up the national screening room because that is, that has been, a, a place where we have been trying to to do outreach with the public, with the world, actually, to just provide as much access to our collections as we can. And that that collection on the National Screening, Screening Room continues to grow, and a lot of that content is downloadable. You can download your own co copy of things from the National Screening Room. So you can see our work there. Um, you can see it at film festivals. We just completed a slew of projects for Portanone for that's next month. And so those all will be screening both on their streaming setup and then also they are having screenings in a theater. So we're also providing DCPs. Right. To, in non-pandemic times, we have a robust film loans program. I think Linan is responsible for loaning over 300 prints out. Wow. And, wow. Yeah, at least. And uh, certainly it will be interesting to see how that rebounds once things are back to normal. But during this pandemic, we have been working on far more digital projects in-house. George is shaking his head because he's been uh, involved in many of them. And <laughs> so we anticipate that that will continue to increase over time. Hmm. And we're trying to, within the film lab, kind of meet that demand and kind of improve, further elevate our workflows in-house. Um, we have someone coming online next week we're very excited about that has extensive background in digital restoration techniques. Mm, so, I think I might know who that is. I think you might know. Mm. Um, so we're trying to... You know, over time for the film lab, you know, when it was first established, we were scanning in standard def and then we were scanning in high def. And now, you know, we have a pretty established digital preservation workflow scanning 2K and 4K. We have digital, uh, digital colorist and we will now have restoration capabilities and we can create DCPs. And so I, I feel that we're, we're, we're ready for the, the digital future and all the different flavors of deliverables that may be requested. And there's uh, a lot, there's a lot of those too now. Yes. I need to go back to, to, to one thing though, because I realized we jumped past something and I want to, I think we really need to uh, tell people listening what 
nitrate film really is because we've been throwing around the word a lot. And I, people know because of Inglorious Bastards that nitrate is very flammable and uh, the Germans don't like it. But we know that from that movie. Um, but what, we don't really know what nitrate is and why it was stopping, why it stopped being used. So maybe, George, maybe you want to give us a nitrate primer. Okay. Well, first of all, the Germans made some of the best nitrate film ever. <laughs> Agfa nitrate is beautiful and it doesn't shrink. But uh, yeah, and I, every I, hardly a year goes by. Of course, now since we're in this different world, uh, where someone doesn't say, "Oh, have you seen Inglorious Bastard? They burn that nitrate. That stuff's dangerous." <laughs> and like, yeah, okay. Um, <laughs> but but yeah. basically, nitrate film comes out of the invention of plastic. Basically, uh, nitrocellulose was one of the first plastics to be developed in the late nineteenth century. Unlike what Kodak wants you to believe, there was a minister whose name escapes my mind right now. If I think of it, I will say it again. And he um, – oh, hold on. I'm being called from the other room. Uh, can you talk amongst yourselves for just a minute? I will yeah, come yeah, back yeah. to the story. I'll be right back. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I popped over to the um, National Screening Room website, and in another life, I was a geologist. And there's this amazing vi uh, film on here from the San – I was a geologist in San Francisco. And there's an amazing film from the San Francisco earthquake and fire on April 18th of 1906. It is so cool because that was a very famous earthquake. It is so right. cool to see. It's amazing. And you can just click on it on my computer right and now. And you can download it probably, right? Uh, like 95 percent of the stuff on there. Yeah, holy crap. I can download it. And yeah, I can download can like a high-quality version of it too. Yeah. What? This is awesome. I'd be doing that too, but I, I feel like I'll I'll just I know I'm everybody. gonna get lost in this. I'm gonna I'm not I'm gonna stop. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Heather, do you cool. want to talk about yeah, it's up to you really. Do you want to talk about how your transition from the academy and what you were doing at the academy to what you were what you're doing now at the Library of uh, Congress and how you got there? Yeah. Oh wait, there's paper prints here too. This is awesome. <laughs> oh, we we definitely need to plug this more at the oh, end. Oh, this is so today. cool. <laughs> what? Okay, Heather, tell us about Sorry, okay. this is awesome. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, so I, I've been at the library for three years. And before that, for almost 15 years, I was a film preservationist at the Academy Film Archive. And I supervised over a little over 300 different preservation, restoration projects focusing on preservation and restoration of films that have been nominated or received Academy Awards, but also uh, the other unique holdings within the Academy's uh, collection. And so I've been part of that, that transition from photochemical preservation to digital, um, you know, over my career at the Academy. And so I, I worked uh, frequently with vendors and photochemical laboratories. I was a client of those facilities. And so I would go to quality control screenings and, you know, a sign off on new prints and new DCPs and restoration, digital restoration work. And uh, my work here at the library uh, as the motion picture laboratory supervisor, I uh, manage and oversee the operations of the film laboratory, both the uh, photochemical and digital side. And so now like the tables have turned 
Now I'm actually on the other side, mm. uh, managing a facility, uh, but also bringing to that kind of my my background and experience in um, overseeing preservation and restoration work, and you know further tweaking and, and improving uh, our capabilities. And like I was saying earlier, kind of bringing us up um, to kind of the same levels as uh, the rest of the uh, film industry and following those best practices. Um, and so I, I've learned so much uh, in three years and continue to learn from the uh, staff that are within the film laboratory. Many of them have been doing this type of work since Dayton. Uh, they came from Dayton, working in the photochemical laboratory. And then there are others that have come from Los Angeles and worked at, you know, like Photochem or other like digital restoration facilities and have brought, you know, their expertise. And so it's an incredibly diverse um, group of people that bring just a wealth of knowledge to our, our abilities. And like I said, I, I'm learning something every day from one of them or more. Um, and I'm been very grateful to, to have this opportunity to, to be a part of this, um, of this lab because I've said this before to other people, like when you think about it, like we are all like George, you know, we're responsible for the nation's film heritage. And so, you know, when you're thinking you're having a particularly bad day or something, if you kind of take yourself out of it and think about that way, you're like, yeah, this is, this is a pretty cool place. This is a pretty good place. We, we do a lot of good work here. Yeah, that's a, that's a good way of thinking about it. I've, we've been working on Citizen Kane and, um, you know, every moment, even when it's problematic, you just think to yourself, but it's Citizen, Citizen Kane. Kane. You, <laughs> I mean, it's okay. It's okay. We'll figure right. it out. But, you know, combined with the technology and combined with something from 1942, you're like always very conscious of like making sure you get it right. And you must always be in that, but you're dealing with history. I mean, we're all dealing with history and history is something that you, you know, if you don't respect it, you're, you can screw it up. It's true. And, you know, we all feel that, I wouldn't say it's pressure, but, you know, we want to do our best work and want to make sure that the filmmakers who made these films would hopefully be pleased with, <laughs> you know, the decisions we've made. And yes and things like that. And we're trying to respect uh, their past work and- Trying to get in their mindset. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And you know, maybe that's imagination too. I don't know. I'd like to sit, think of Orson Welles next to me in the DI room going, can you make that brighter? Totally. But would he really want that? I don't know. <laughs> well, we had an interesting, it's funny you say that. This is one of my favorite stories with Lynn Ann and I, and we were working, on this this set of uh, female film pioneers for one of your competitors, and um, and we're working on Lois Weber, Lois Weber films. I really didn't, and this is one of the reasons I loved working on this set is that when I was in film school, we never heard about women filmmakers. Not not mm. going back that far, anyways. Never heard about Alice Guy Blaché. Never heard about Lois Weber. 
nothing. So it was really exciting to learn about them. So we really got into Lois Weber, myself more than Lynn Ann. She was more of an Alice Gee fan. Um, but we were working on her film Hypocrites, which was her first feature. And it's this amazing allegorical film. It's absolutely outrageous for the time. Um, it's got female nudity in it that got them in a lot of trouble in Ohio and, and other places. But, but it was a huge hit, huge success. So we're working on this thing, and it's been out there. There's one copy of it. A print was found in Australia, and the library was either purchased or was given a copy of the Australian material. Uh, the nitrate is long gone. So we started working on this, and at the point we were working on it, we had already done maybe 10, 15 of her other films. So as you were saying, we kind of got in her head. We saw how she put things together. We saw what her storytelling was like, and we put hypocrites together. And we sat there looking at it like, "This is awful. <laughs> this nothing. It doesn't work. The story doesn't work. It's clunky. What is going on? The characters don't make any sense." And after a while, it was really bugging me. It's just driving me nuts. And I'll never forget. I was here. I've got a very large yard, and I'm I'm mowing it one Saturday. And all I'm thinking about is what is wrong with hypocrites? Why isn't this working? And all of a sudden I went, wait a minute. And this thing kind of hit me. And I could hardly wait to get back to work on Monday. And so we sat down again and I went, okay, let's try this. What if the reels are in the wrong order? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this film has been available for 40 years now and critics who know a lot more about film than I do. Historians, they've all seen this thing and they've written about it. And they've all written about her non, what was it, non-linear editing style. I'm like, <laughs> what if it's not non-linear? What if the reels are in the wrong order? I said, let's take reel three and make it reel one. So we did. And we watched it again and bam, it fell into place. it was. Amazing. And we're like, and then we're like, okay, how do we prove this? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. What do you got to just do this, you know, 40 years worth of So what do you do? We started searching. Uh, there's a great source called Lantern. I don't know if you if you haven't seen it. We use it pretty much every day. Just look up Lantern. It is thousands of historical film magazines, documents going back to the earliest days, all the way up until the 50s. Also, also uh, uh, things like Billboard and mm. and some recorded sound stuff. So we started looking up reviews of hypocrites, and we found one that had a synopsis built into it, and the synopsis fell in place just like what we had just done. Ah, oh, cool. So you were right, right on the money. Right on the money. So, yeah, now it, now it plays really nice. <laughs> <laughs> no one has mentioned it, though, which really surprises me. Yeah. Okay, so before I forget, let's finish up your, your nitrate. nitrate yeah, right. Do you and remember where you were? I remembered the guy's okay, name. Okay, okay, good. Okay. So... So nitrate film comes out of the development of nitrocellulose uh, plastic in the late 1900s. And there was this minister, the Reverend Hannibal Goodwin. He did traveling shows with glass slides. And, of course, every show he'd go to, he'd probably break at least one slide. It would fall on the floor. And he's like, how can I – what can I do to you know get these slides so they don't break? He was also kind of a, a, you know, a kitchen inventor and tinkerer, and he learned about – this nitrocellulose plastic and said, well, it's very clear. Maybe I could use it. And he figured out how to put an emulsion on this plastic to make a photographic material out of it. And then while he, you know, I started making his slides out of this nitrocellulose plastic while he was doing this and he put in his uh, patent papers, uh, George Eastman jumped in and basically took it and ran with it. 
and created the Eastman Kodak Company. In fact, there was a big lawsuit in the early 1900s between Goodwin's company and Kodak. And the upshot of it was that Goodwin was named the inventor of film. But you still don't hear about it because in 1900, Goodwin was building a factory for his production of, of, motion, of not motion picture film, but just film in general. And he went to visit the, the site and got hit by a truck and killed. So his film company kept on and became Ansco, Ansco Company, which, of course, is kind of no longer with us. But anyways, so when Edison and folks were starting to develop motion pictures, the nitrate was a natural Thing that they were going to use because it was already available just need to be properly cut into you know whatever size they were looking at and turns out because safety film was developed shortly after that but nitrate was a clearer film base to begin with stronger film base because you're going to take these prints and you're going to run them and run them and run them. And those early projectors, some of them, the movements were actually referred to as beater movements. Because <laughs> rather than a you know a, a claw or something like that, it actually had a little metal bar about this big that just kind of flapped against the film to move it. And it basically beat the film into submission. Mm. So yeah, so nitrate was a good, strong film base that could take a lot of abuse. Its biggest problem was first... It was very flammable. And then shortly thereafter, they begin to discover the deterioration factor starts coming in. So it's not until you know about 1950 when Kodak develops triacetate safety film that that is deemed an adequate replacement for nitrate. When that happened, was it – did everybody immediately just stop using nitrate? Was it that fast? No. No, nitrate oh. continues on. We have some negatives from like 52, huh. I think, 52, 53 that still have bits of nitrate in them. Mm. Uh, and the Soviet Union never gave up on a good thing. So we have some Soviet prints from the 60s <laughs> that are nitrate. And you have to be real careful with film, with home movies shot in the Soviet Union because they also made nitrate 8 millimeter and 16 millimeter. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, we, we, we talk about it all the time. It can be very glorious, but dangerous. Although I've, I haven't really experienced much danger with it personally, luckily. I guess you could say Ryan and I did a uh, uh, a workshop in India where we took a uh, piece of uh, nitrate, a small little piece of nitrate, and a small on little plane. piece of safety. Yeah, we did bring it on the plane with us, but was, I put it in, a, in a, between a book pages. It was fun. And when we got to India, we took the whole class outside to try to prove to them how dangerous nitrate was. And it surely it went up like that, as opposed to the safety, which kind of slowly right. burned. And um, we got that from the Library of Congress as well, didn't we? Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> All right, scratch that. <laughs> I, don't, I actually remember which title it was. Somebody gave me it, and I don't. George, I'm pretty sure. Maybe it was you. It was uh, like the, the fire. The what was the name? No, it wasn't the fire. It, it'll come out. It'll come to me. I think you might have. Could you? Yeah, I think it's coming back. I would have had to have asked asked Mike if I could do it. It was years know. ago, though. I. Yeah, because we always, I mean, you know, we are, things get surplused and discarded and leaders and whatnot. So, yeah, it could have been a little something from something. You know what I think it was? I think we had borrowed the film from you and literally like in the can, there was this small little piece that had just come off that was clear. It didn't have anything on it. Maybe it had like a black frame or something like that. Because mm. it didn't say anything on it. That I think I read written on it, Ryan, didn't I? Of like the title or something, because it didn't really say. Anyway, it must have been a piece of leader. It was a, definitely a piece oh, of leader. Yeah, it definitely was leader. Yeah. Um, it wasn't like the body. I didn't take like the body of the film and burn it. So um, <laughs> I'm not that bad. <laughs> uh, well, this was fun. Thank you so much for uh, talking to us. I, I, you know, 
I think nitrate's a mystery other than, you know, Inglorious Bastards, which everyone feels like they know it. But, you know, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of theories around, a lot of talk about it. But, you know, I think the bottom line for me is preserved well and kept safe and used the right way, it can still be glorious. You know, safety film can be also as glorious, but, you know, nitrate, there was something really special about all that silver and and you're right. There is a big mystery about it. I love that, you know, they, there's so much research done on nitrate, but they still don't know everything. It's still a mystery because, you know, we'll get films in that have been stored in someone's attic. We got some out of a garage in Massachusetts. They were beautiful. They had no deterioration. They were gorgeous. And 100 some Degree guy, Summers. Yeah. Yeah. And we had some guy who found two uh, original biograph prints from like 1903, 1904 in their original cans. He was redoing his house. They were next to the chimney. They were in their original <laughs> They were fabulous. On the other hand, we have things from the 40s and early 50s that just – you look at them, they go – they turn to powder. Yeah. You know, there's awful. We have – of course, we have safety films doing the same thing. We have prints that are not even 30 years old yet that are showing signs of vinegar syndrome. Mm. And the irony, we're having you know things that we preserved back in the 70s and the preservations are beginning to show signs of vinegar syndrome. Mm. Luckily, mm. we usually still have the nitrate. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. And it's fine. Yeah. <laughs> just keep it well and keep it safe. Yeah. Keep, store it in a cool, dry place. Yeah. Or just buy like, that person's house and put it next to the chimney. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> if you can send me some pictures of uh, your nitrate vault, I'll put them up on the, uh, the, the, the Dead Pixel Instagram page so we can... Put your put your picture, then followed by lots of nitrate film. All right, we got plenty of pictures. I can yeah, put. yeah. Send me some pictures, Heather. Same thing. Pictures. I'll send you some pictures of the lab. Yeah, yeah. And you, yeah, you that'd be there. great. 